What up and welcome in film fans. This is the SDFP, the second day film podcast on this Tuesday, August 21st, 15 minutes before midnight. A late night pod. Just got out of the theater a little bit ago. Got a whole lot going on today. No popcorn correspondent, champ. Uh, second pod in a row, we're going to be missing him. But, you know, we're going to soldier on with two or three guys. Yeah, of course. I mean, two's a party in this uh, case, you know. It's a little late here, a little past my bedtime, um, you know, but I'm feeling good. I'm ready to do this. All right, we got a whole lot coming up on today's show. We've got Throwback Theater. Been a little while. It's like a throwback on the pod. It's been a while since we've talked about throwing it, it. Throwing it back to the Throwback Theater. That's right. We're doing 2004, which was a great year for films. And we're going to talk about a couple that we liked and one we didn't like. And then we have a poll that we put out on our uh, Facebook page or on Champ's Facebook page. Got some really good hits on this, uh, Champ. So if you could, run down what we had and then what ended up winning. So we threw six different options up there, got some good feedback. Uh, lots of different votes for lots of different flicks going on. Uh, the poll was The Meg, 8th uh, Grade, Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new joint, Mile 22 by Peter Berg, one of my favorites, Slender Man, the new horror film, and Alpha. Um, so a, a wide variety sure. there. Ultimately, 8th Grade and Black Klansman both got 10 votes each. Uh, you and me both voted for 8th Grade, the, uh, the Bo Burnham film. So uh, we decided to go see that one, and that will be our featured review tonight. Yeah, speaking of polls, you know, we want people to connect with us. I mean, if you could just, if you could, like, go to, go to my page and, like, click subscribe and, like, Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, second day film. Were you getting what I was doing there? Yeah, I totally got it. Okay, I got good. it. I didn't do it very well. I'm not an eighth grade girl. Yeah, but, like, yeah. subscribe. If you could share my channel, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. getting a lot of views. Um, but yeah, we're on Facebook, of course, at the Second Day Film Podcast. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. Feel free to give us a rating or a review on there. Really helps us out a little bit. It's the podcast tip jar, as yeah. we've said before. Um, you can email us at secondayfilm at gmail.com. Our website is secondayfilm.com. Dot com. All right, let's get started here. We've got Throwback Theater from the year 2004. I'm going to kick it off if you're okay with that, Champ. Take honors here. Got a couple questions to kick it off. So who's my favorite actor? Leonardo DiCaprio. How many Oscars has he won? One. One Oscar. It's very disappointing. It is disturbing. It's upsetting. It is. So my first film from 2004 that I really enjoyed was a film he should have won an Oscar for, for Best Actor, but didn't. It's The Aviator. This was uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Howard Hughes. Kate Blanchett stars as Katherine Hepburn. Kate Beckinsale plays Ava Gardner. We've also got John C. Riley, Alec Baldwin, Ian Holm. Gwen Stefani makes an appearance. Adam Scott, some people you wouldn't really expect. Um, in this film, I'll just read the description off of IMDb. Uh, pretty simple uh, for the plot line here. A biopic depicting the early years of legendary director and aviator Howard Hughes' career from the late 1920s to the mid-1940s. I already said this was a very critically acclaimed film. It was nominated for 11 Oscars in 2004, and that was the most among any film from that year. It won five. Again, just not the one that it deserved the most, which was a Best Actor for Leonardo DiCaprio, um, but look, this was a, a, a great film. It, it, it really is an epic biopic. It's a long film, as with most biopics and most Martin Scorsese films, 
about three hours runtime. It's a sweeping film of the life of Howard Hughes. You know, in the description it said the 20s to the 40s, but there are scenes in the beginning that, you know, depict his childhood. So the 1910s all the way to the 1940s. And I think the elements of this film kind of inherently make it exciting. Hughes is a film director. So there's flashy, there's the flashy, fun atmosphere of early Hollywood. We're talking early Hollywood. Film buffs like you and I would take notice as Hughes created one of the first sound films, one of the first films of the sound era, Hell's Angels, which is a 1930 film which is based on war pilots. And that kind of led Hughes into the next phase of his career, which was as an aviation pioneer. There are some awesome scenes if you're a fan of flying and the advancement and development of aviation, both commercial airplanes and warplanes as well. But I think where this film succeeds is not in Hughes' successes, but in his struggle. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is brilliant in those moments. Of course, Hughes struggled tremendously with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. At first, we kind of see it gradually throughout the film and throughout his life. He's a germaphobe. He kind of obsesses also over the creation of Hell's Angels, the film. And there's an absurd amount of time and money that he spends to get that film right. And it takes a really long time for him to finally produce it. But it's later in his life, in Hugh's life, where we see that OCD really take hold. He becomes progressively more unstable, especially as you know, his career achievements start to crumble and his relationships start to fall apart. And I won't give too much away, but there are some really powerful scenes that depict his struggle. When Hughes was at his lowest, that's when DiCaprio was at his best. I gave The Aviator an 8 out of 10. Wow, so solid film. Definitely up there for you. I have to say The Aviator is one of my, uh, I think it might be the only Martin Scorsese film I haven't seen. Uh, not exactly sure why, because I think it's been on Netflix and it's super yeah. easy and reachable to watch. I think it still is. Yeah, um, you know, and we actually took a Martin Scorsese class in college, so I must have skipped that day or something. <laughs> you know, must have. I think must have went out on Pint Night on a Tuesday and uh, was too hungover <laughs> yeah. to, to make it to the 6 o'clock class. <laughs> or something. often. Yeah, uh, who knows. <laughs> Anyways, I have uh, definitely got to see that because I'm obviously a huge fan of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Um, so my first movie I'm going to jump into, you mentioned 2004 was a really solid year for movies. It definitely has some of my favorites, um, you know, some of my favorite sports flicks like Friday Night Lights and Miracle. You know, you had some blockbuster flicks, you know, like Spider-Man 2 and Troy. Um, you can, know, and, and, and I also just add Saw was yes. a 2004 film, Garden State, one of my faves. We all know Evan's love for Garden State. Um, and the, the Notebook, which is one of uh, people love uh, a romance film. Uh, most of those flicks are pretty well known, I feel like, though. And, and like we've said before, the idea of this segment is to sort of highlight movies people may have forgotten about or, or flicks sure. that maybe have slipped through the cracks. Um, so I went with a movie called Big Fish, directed by Tim Burton. Uh, this movie stars Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, Billy Kudrow, Jessica Lange, Marion Cotillard, Steve Buscemi, Helen and Bonham Carter, Matthew McGrory, Alyssa Lohman, and Danny DeVito. Um, and the plot summary from IMDb, a frustrated son tries to determine the fact from fiction in his dying father's life. Um, this is a story told in two different time periods. One is one is sort of in the present day uh, with an old Edward Bloom, who is our main character, uh, he's portrayed by Albert Finney uh, in the current period. And he and he sort of tells the story of his life, which we watch in flashbacks, and we see Ewan McGregor portray uh, Edward Bloom in the flashbacks. Um, 
the movie definitely has some sort of Forrest Gump vibes in the way that it sort of tells the story in a sort of episodic way. Um, you know, Edward Bloom is sort of this larger-than-life guy, you know, who somehow finds himself involved in all these sort of wacky, quirky situations. You know, it has more fantasy elements than Forrest Gump, I would say, but it's equally as charming. You know, the the stories that are sort of told in these sort of vignettes while we're flashing back and forth are super enchanting and filled with these quirky characters and interesting settings. You know, Tim Burton, obviously, is, is the master of style and pizzazz, and, and yeah. I think his vision really works in this movie. You know, the characters are all wonderfully imagined. The sceneries are all unique with each of them that we go to. Um, and, and it really works here, I think. You know, but at the core of this movie... Uh, you know, aside from all the pizzazz and, and the Burton-esque aspects of it, is a theme of reconciliation between a dying father and his son. Um, and what I read in, you know, some fe special features and in interviews with Burton is, is this hit really close to home for him because his father actually was dying around this time when he was making this movie or had just died before. Um, so it was, it was sort of a really personal project for him to sort of do this. You know, the heart of the story is between a father and son and their relationship. You know, Billy Coudreau, who plays the son, is sort of this matter-of-fact guy who's who's sick of his dad's stories, you know, thinks he's just a croc, you know, a big fish, <laughs> telling fish stories. So that's where the title comes exactly. into play. Okay. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm not going to give away exactly what happens, but he, he sort of learns the truth of what's important, and, and he learns that it's really all about having a love for life, and his father was really just trying to teach him a lesson all along. It's a movie that demonstrates how talented Tim Burton can be, um, you know, as a really talented tech cast and it's a really fun adventure to go on you know at the 76th academy awards uh danny elfman was nominated for the academy award for best original score it's a really whimsical sort of score sure. that helps set the mood of the imaginative story um, i just think it's a, a movie that is it, it's just fun to watch it's a fun adventure it's clever it's creative um and, and it has a good message to it so uh if you haven't seen big fish i recommend uh checking it out i haven't seen it and i i feel like it's one of those films that i Clicking through, I've almost started it a couple times, never have. So it's kind of about a, a storytelling dad, one of those dads who tells a lot of stories, and the son's got to figure out what's what really happened in his life. For sure. Okay. And, you know, we all have those family members that, oh, yeah. you know, love to tell stories. And, you know, if you've got a grandpa or someone who's always telling tales from his life, and you're, you're not quite sure if what he's saying is actually true, but you, you don't really care because it's so entertaining. You know, it's kind of just like, oh, wow, hmm. your life is so fascinating. <laughs> you know, but are you making this shit up? You know, yeah. and, and I think this movie does a good job of finding the balance between what it means to accept those lies but still you know sort of challenge them at the same time to sort of get to know who your person was before you were alive um you know like i said it's just a really fun movie there's some this sort of narration by ewan mcgregor and ewan mcgregor's perfect at kind oh, yeah. of like how he was in christopher robin which i saw a couple <laughs> weeks ago he's just got kind of this charm to him this youngish charm and i think it really works in this movie um i would i would definitely recommend checking it out and for the smart Alex who frequent IMDb like we do, yes, we see it's listed as a 2003 film. 
However, if you go down to the very bottom of the page and you see the release date, it was 9th of January 2004. Yes, there's definitely a little bit of nuance in, you know, when a movie was actually, because a lot of films premiere at, you know, the film festivals the year before and they don't get a release date, you know, until later. You know, so I actually, while we're on that topic, I actually asked, you know, when I've started making these top 10 films of the year lists, I actually tweeted at some of the critics I follow, you know, the the quote-unquote professional critics, you know, (laughs) who do it for a day job. We're not pros. Uh, We don't get paid It's kind of a side job at this point, but, you know, you know, and I asked them you know when you're making a top 10 list is it when the film was actually first released and they're just kind of like it's really whatever you want it to be so sure uh you know for Fair me enough. big fish i give it an eight out of ten by the way so. all right all right my next one i'm gonna talk about a couple disappointments one for me one for champ my disappointment is a film from 2004 called taking lives and this was uh imdb plot description here an fbi profiler played by Angelina Jolie, is called in by French-Canadian police to catch a serial killer who takes on the identity of each new victim. This is directed by DJ Caruso. Name didn't ring a bell for me. Uh, It's starring a pretty good cast here. It's starring Angelina Jolie, Ethan Hawke, and Kiefer Sutherland. Those are your big three. Obviously very, um, very well-established actors and actresses. Um... But, you know, with that cast, right, you'd expect a solid kind of psychological murder mystery crime drama. But this was largely considered a disappointment by the critics. And I think by the public it was a mix. But I'm, I'm right with the market of the critics on this. I, it was not an impressive feature to me. You know, it feels like it's, uh, you know, it's one of those crime dramas, serial killer, gotta catch the guy who done it, that's just dark, grisly, and disturbing, but without really a point. Right. Sometimes those are important elements in film. They create kind of the shock and awe and they help create an atmosphere and they contribute to a film. But it felt like here it was just like that because it was supposed to be. I don't really know how else to describe it other than that. It also felt completely unoriginal. Other critics have said this tries to be like Seven and the Hannibal films. I totally agree. And in that it doesn't bring much new to the table and kind of feels like a churned out carbon copy. And also, if you're looking for a sharp, smart thriller, you're going to have to look somewhere else. This film is littered with cliches, littered with just improbable plot developments, and an almost unforgivable red herring. And if anybody who's seen it um, knows what I'm talking about with the red herring, I mean, I'm sure it clicked right away. Have you seen this movie, Taking Lives? I have not. I've never even heard of it. And I just quickly wow. quickly Googled the uh, this director, DJ Caruso. Three most notable movies that stand out to me, Disturbia and Eagle Eye, both with Shia LaBeouf, and uh, I Am Number Four, okay. uh, which is a movie I've seen actually too, which is not great. Um, so I can't really add much, but you know, you would think, you would hope for better with that sort of plot yeah. or uh, cast. You wouldn't. I know you're an Ethan Hawke fan. I'm an Ethan Hawke fan. I know Sinister was, you know, I mean, he's, he's had many, many roles. But, but yeah, it was a miss for me and uh, a miss for most as well. And I just mention it here because I think there were expectations that were higher for it and they didn't reach those. Yeah, and we should say here in Throwback Theater, uh, why do we mention movies that, you know, we're telling you don't watch? Well, that's mm-hmm. exactly why. We're trying to save you two hours of your time. You know, we like to recommend movies for the most part here on this podcast. Yeah. But 
from time to time, especially here in throwback theater, we like to, you know, put up a put up a stop sign. Sure. Don't do it. Hey. You know? I mean, look, you know, with, with, with Netflix, with On Demand, you're going to run through a million movies. If you're like, I'm in the mood for a crime drama, hopefully I saved you the two hours it would have taken you to watch Taking Lives. So how about you, Champ? What did you, what are you recommending that viewers maybe not watch? So I have a feeling that I, I might get some hate. Hate mail, some hate, some uh -oh. hate tweets for this one, Dean. Um, and I want to make it clear that you know this isn't necessarily a movie I hate, uh, but I do think it's a little bit overrated, uh, especially around the holidays. Um, but you know, as Ebenezer Scrooge would say, "Bah humbug." So here we go. Uh, I chose *The Polar Express* uh, by director Robert Zemeckis. Uh, this is a, a holiday classic that people love to pop on, you know, around the Christmas season. Um, you know, Tom Hanks is in this movie. He voiced six different roles. He's, he plays our main character uh, in motion capture. He doesn't voice him. But he's also the hero boy's father, the conductor, the hobo, Santa Claus, and the narrator in this movie. Uh, this is an animated film based on the classic book by Chris Van Allsburg who, of course, is a native of Grand Rapids, right here where we are uh, recording yes, this podcast. Yes, that was crazy when I found that out when I watched this, because I just watched it a couple years ago. Yes, and I love that story. I still do. Uh, so I had huge expectations for this movie. Um, and, and I have to say, every time I'm, I'm forced to watch it, I'm largely disappointed. Um, and, and, and for a re few reasons. There's a few reasons I, I, I like, or a few things I like about the, the movie. I think it starts off great with Tom Tom Hanks' narration and he's looking back, you know, on this particular Christmas Eve when he went and met Santa Claus and, you know, this adventure happened. You know, it has this sort of magical quality to it and it really feels like you're about to go on a grand adventure. Um, but, but unlike the movie I just talked about, Big Fish, once you go on that actual adventure, I feel like it's a letdown. The animation in this, I think, is hit or miss. They use this... In 2004, motion capture was kind of this new technology that they were kind of trying to use. You know, and I think the landscapes and the settings on the train and in the North Pole looks good. I think that that, that works. But the human animation looks clunky to me. Uh, you know, the, the characters have like an awkward, unnatural movements and their faces honestly look like Picasso had a hand in designing them. Mm. They're just something not quite right. You know, I, I'm surprised kids honestly don't have nightmares from watching this. Like even Santa Claus kind of gives me the creeps in this movie. Everything just looks a little bit yeah. weird. Yep. Um, you know, the tone feels weird throughout the movie. It's like living in this sort of warped, runaway carnival <laughs> rather than a sort of feel-good Christmas spectacle that I think it's going for. It has a nice message. It's one of believing in what you can't see and making sure you never lose, you know, that sort of innocent joy of the Christmas season. Um, but but I honestly, I think this movie is a definition of a whole lot of flash without a lot of substance. It was nominated for sound mixing, sound editing, and for original song, which is cute. Um, oh. it, but the look, uh, if this movie is not good, if this movie was actually good, would Shark Tale have been nominated over it in the Best Animated Feature category? You know, a, a lot of people like this movie, but... To me, I feel like it's be more because of the nostalgia and around Christmas, everyone wants a nice little family flick. And that's fine. I think it probably works on that level. I'm not trying to say it doesn't do that. But like I said, you know, if you want a feel-good Christmas movie, look elsewhere. Or, better yet, just read the book. Oh, huh. uh, yeah. So I, I obviously have seen The Polar Express. And I don't... Yeah, I, I agree that... It, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. For me, it was an average movie. But what I will say is this. It did give me one thing. And, and if not my favorite, 
It is my one of my top three all-time favorite Christmas songs. Believe by Josh Groban is one of my... I mean, it's an amazing Christmas song. That, you know, when it comes in and out, I mean, it's just a magical song. The tune is absolutely amazing, and it reminds me of Christmas every time I hear it. And so I thank the film for giving me that, but when my favorite thing from the film is an original song it produced... Yeah, it might say something about the film itself. Yeah, and that song is cute. It's fine. It, it works for, you know, the Christmas season, and it probably yeah. deserved the, the, you know, the nomination that it got. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, when we're talking about Christmas classics, I think this one's way overrated. I don't know if it's just because we live in Michigan where the author's from and the story originated, but I feel like everywhere I go, there's screenings of the Polar <laughs> Express yeah. with hot chocolate and wear your pajamas and... I'm not trying to be a Scrooge over here, but I kind of am. That That's all cute, and if you're go, looking for something fun to do with the family, that's fine. But I think there's a whole hell of a lot better Christmas movies than the Polar Express. I was just expecting more. Maybe my expectations were too high. Hey, fair enough. All right, we're going to jump next to uh, a film I really liked from 2004. And, uh, Champ, we've been talking a lot about documentaries lately, ever since you saw the Mr. Rogers documentary, Will You Be My Neighbor. Any guesses to the, the documentary that... I have now, from 2004, hit, hit documentary. Nothing, okay. You got me. You got me. <laughs> so, 2004, Super Size Me. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like this film, whenever it's on, I watch it. If I'm, it's halfway through, I watch it. If Super entertaining. Yes, if it's three quarters or a quarter, I watch it. Um, and, of course, this was a super uh, documentary Directed by Morgan Spurlock and acted in... Uh, he's not acting. He's, he's playing the part uh, of basically test experiment here. And, you know, you know the story here. But I'll read the, the plot description off IMDb. While examining the influence of the fast food industry, Morgan Spurlock personally explores the consequences on his health of a diet solely McDonald's food for one month. So breakfast, lunch, dinner. 30 days. He eats nothing but McDonald's. And, you know, this is just a showcase of the best of what documentary film can be. Look, it's cheaply made. It's shot on a terrible camera. There's just a lot of sloppy editing and sloppy shots and bad camera placement. Cheesy graphics and animations. Um, the budget is just $65,000. 65000 You and I could put together that money, uh, you know, and, and make a film. Half of which was spent on McChickens. Exactly. <laughs> Guess how much it made? $22 million. That's what we call a profit. Exactly. And that's because of the, the impact this film had. You know, you and I are in a field of journalism where, if done well with determination and with passion, it can literally enact change. Documentaries, I think in a way, in some ways, are a form of journalism, potentially. And they pair all that, and because of that, they can have a major impact as well. Six weeks after this film debuted, McDonald's literally got rid of its supersized portion, which, do you remember the supersized portion? It was, it was disturbing. I'll take a bucket of root beer, please. It was, it was a bucket of root beer and a box of fries. It was crazy. Um, you know, I think what also makes this film solid is the tone of it. The filmmaker, you know, he's dealing with serious issues... But he adds his humor to it, right? I mean, it's 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 as it starts, as he goes on a journey, it's kind of funny. He's just like kind of making fun of how ridiculous the McDonald's diet is and just how there's a lot of humor with him eating this diet every day. 
But as it goes on gradually, it becomes a sobering film. No joke, his health rapidly deteriorates. He gets sick. He gets to the point where doctors are saying, if you keep eating this at this rate, you're going to die. So it starts out light and ends in a pretty dark, uh, kind of a dark humor uh, type of tone. It's a film that really makes you think. It makes you think about America, our eating habits, our exercising habits, food in schools. It makes you think about corporate America and money and advertising and how we appeal to kids and human beings all for a buck. It makes you think about your own habits and tendencies. And I love when documentaries do that. You reflect on yourself a little bit. And uh, it might make you steer clear of fast food for a little while as well. Well, I just ate some Taco Bell earlier, so thanks for shaming me uh, there. And, I love you know, McDonald's. I just, whenever I watch this, though, I'm like, take a little break from McDonald's until I've gotten the film out of my head a little bit more. Yeah, obviously eating it every day for every meal is a little bit extreme. And, of course, your health is going to deteriorate if you do that. But nominated for Best Documentary uh, at the Academy Awards that year. And what I remember about this is it was one of the first documentaries that I consciously was like, I need to watch this. You know, I, I wasn't... It, it affects was, us all. Right. It was kind of before, I, you know, I'd gotten really into film and watching different kinds of cinema. And I just remember it was one of the first sort of mainstream documentaries, at least for me, that I remember everyone talking about and be like, you got to watch this. You got to see this. You know, it was this, shocking. I feel like it, it even made documentaries popular again, because I feel like after this, there was like a a bunch of food-related documentaries like Food, Inc., and examining all the crazy things about and, corporate food and, and how that yeah. happens and Michael interacts Moore with our had some hits right after this. Right, so I feel like this really popularized documentaries again, at least, you know, revived them within the mid-2000s. Obviously, documentaries have been around forever. Um, but yeah, I definitely remember watching this movie. I gave it a 9 out of 10, so I was a, wow. I was a huge fan of this yeah. movie um, when I saw it. And I think that's because it had such a big impact and it was such a, a clever idea or a stupid idea depending on how you look at it but you know what i still eat mcdonald's that shit's good oh it is good it is good but yeah i'm with you i think i i, I think i have it as an eight um which i really like but yeah obviously you consider it among one of your your best so cool all right so i'm gonna move on to uh my last uh recommendation here and uh this one is again kind of like the polar express i think it's gonna be a little bit divisive and polarizing um this is an m night Shyamalan movie called The Village, and it stars Joaquin Phoenix, Adrian Brody, Bryce Dallas Howard, William Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, and Brendan Gleeson, and I knew you were going to have that reaction because a lot of people had that same reaction. Evan's over here, he's not impressed. But anyways, the plot summary on IMDb, a series of events tests the beliefs of a small, isolated countryside village. This movie is extremely divisive amongst critics and fans alike, especially when it came out. Um, I think it's Probably M. Night Shyamalan's most polarizing film yet, uh, and, it, and it still is. Roger Ebert, in particular, despised this movie. Um, and, uh, you know, this is coming off. Shyamalan had previously released The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs in the few years prior. So this is like peak M. Night Shyamalan, whatever he does. I mean, even today, people want to see what he puts out. He's but a good one but at up. this point, you know, he was, everyone was like, what is he going to come up with next? Um, so it was high, hotly debated and t anticipated. Whether or not this movie is good is debated even to this day. Um, I fell on the side of loving this flick. I, th I thought the idea of this sort of isolated colonial village fearing uh, quote-unquote creatures in the woods was extremely effective. I thought through production design, lighting, and music, 
it creates a sort of an extremely creepy atmosphere that sort of builds throughout the film. James Newton Howard was nominated for Best Achievement in Music, written for a motion picture, so at least they agreed on that. Um, like many of M. Night Shyamalan's movies, it's, it's one of those flicks where you don't really know what's going on the whole time. And ultimately, whether or not you like this movie comes down to whether or not the twist worked for you. For me, I didn't see it coming at all. It worked great for me. Um, you know, I was completely blown away. I, I really did not see this happen, happening. Um, others who didn't like it felt it was implausible and didn't make sense. I'm obviously not going to give the twist away. You know, I think, but I think most of those complaints can be justified by what's explained within the film. Um, this idea that everything in the outside world is a monster, it has commentary on society, societal structure, and societal norms. Um, and, and since when, this is at least me sticking up for the film, since when do we judge M. Night Shyamalan's films on whether or not they're plausible? To me, that's a dumb criticism. You know, I, I found it to be a really compelling and engaging film, um, and, and I'd be interested to hear what those who haven't seen it think, because it seems like people either liked this movie or hated it. Yeah, I mean, so you enjoyed the twist. How much did the film and how much you enjoyed it rely on that? Because I don't know that like the bulk of the film was that interesting. I found it to be interesting because there's this looming threat from the outside world that we don't know what it is. Um, you know, a movie that we talked about uh, several pods back, The Witch, sort of goes for the same colonial atmosphere. I'd say that one's a little even more creepy and grungy than this movie. But I found the atmosphere to be great. There's these sort of sentries on the outside of the wood on this clearing there's a sort of elder system where it's outdated and and you know women are doing this and the children have to do this and there's these ominous markings on doors and there's effective lighting with candlelight i i, I thought it was a good movie i really did i think it's one of his better ones i enjoyed the whole movie but what i'm saying is that i think people who disliked it are, say it because the twist was dumb I, I really think that's the big reason. I, I, don't I've think heard... you, I don't think it was dumb, but here's kind of my question. I didn't hate the movie. I actually didn't. I kind of did one of these just because you loved it, and I, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I thought it was okay. Some of his films have, del you know, have delved more in the fantasy world. This was not a fantasy film. This was a totally set in the real world film. There was no ghosts. There was, sorry to spoil the other movie, there was no ghost, there was no, cre like, magical creatures, like Lady in the Water, there was, you know. What are you talking they, about? There's the creatures in the woods. I know, I know, but, but it wasn't like a fantasy film, so it was all set in the real world. So, therefore, shouldn't it be held to a higher standard of whether or not it's actually probable that it played out the way it did? Because that's obviously what people took issue with it is so the most ridiculous and probable thing ever and it wasn't it was taking place in the real world yeah but i guess i'm willing to look past that i'm willing to say yeah, this is a movie that is is going for a certain atmosphere and a certain tone and if you can allow yourself to get lost in the setting i think it can be an effective horror film yeah no it's fair enough look i i yeah i didn't Love it. I didn't hate it, like I said. Well, and I, I'm I'm clearly, you know, I mean, it's got like a 6.2 or something like that on IMDb. I gave it an 8. So I'm clearly higher than, you know, the, the consensus. And a lot of people thought this movie was awful. Like I said, Roger Ebert put it on like his list of worst movies of all time. And he's arguably, probably not even arguably, the most notable critic of the 20, 20th century. So, you know, 
it is what it is. A lot of people didn't like the movie. I thought it was effective. Yeah, You're I, not always going to be with what everyone no, thinks. No, and I respect, the, the, uh, I respect you being willing to go against the grain. You know, that's good. We are obviously, as, as people who review films, we need to form our own opinions. And that's why you and I have disagreed big time on a few films we've reviewed. Yeah. And, uh, and that's good. So cool. All yeah. right. Just before we move on to our featured review, just to recap the Academy Awards yeah. that year, uh, the 77th Academy Awards it was, uh, a couple of movies we didn't talk about sort of dominated the major categories. It was mm-hmm. Million Dollar Baby won Best Picture that year, which is an excellent film, definitely worth seeing. Clint Eastwood was the director of that. He won Best Director. Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles and Ray was an incredible performance. It was, and you know, Leo maybe could have won, but yeah, it was it was a good performance. Stacked category in the Best Actor that year: Don Cheadle in Hotel Rwanda, Johnny Depp in Finding Neverland, Leo in The Aviator, and Clint Eastwood also Mm -hmm. in The Million Dollar Baby. So, dual nominee that year. Uh, Hillary Swank won Best Actress for Million Dollar Baby. Um, Best Supporting Actress was Morgan Freeman in Million Dollar Baby. Best Supporting Actress was Kate Blanchett in The Aviator, so there you go. At least you get you get one there. there um, but so uh, obviously, Million Dollar Baby and did not crack either of our lists, but definitely a movie worth checking out. Oh yeah, if you're not sobbing at the end of that film, you have no soul. All right, so next up, we're gonna get to our featured review, Eighth Grade. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. So the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard. And it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever. But I'm not quiet. Most quiet. Kayla Day. So this film, uh, it's actually... A bit of a new venture for Bull Burnham. He's become a really well-known comedian, a younger guy. I'm ballparking. He's somewhere around our age. And, uh, I mean, this is a pretty big, you know, ambitious project for him. Um, and, and I'll give you the plot description off IMDb. An introverted teenage girl tries to survive the last week of her disastrous eighth grade year before leaving to start high school. Again, directed by Bull Burnham, the star of this film... And I, I haven't seen her in anything else. Maybe you could call it a breakout role. Elsie Fisher plays Kayla. Uh, some of the other roles, Josh Hamilton plays her dad um, in this. It's also got Emily Robinson, Jake Ryan. I don't really need to keep going because you're probably not going to know any of these actors or actresses. I guess, I guess I'll just kind of dive in, champ, in pre-spoilers. I mean, wow, this was an exercise in being uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, there's no better way... To make us understand what it is like to be an awkward 8th grade outsider than to put us through all of the incredibly cringeworthy situations that this poor girl's going through. I was wincing, cringing, and putting my shirt over my eyes for part of the film because I was just... It's really effective in that. And obviously that's part of Bo Burnham's goal. He kind of strikes me as a guy who was probably an outsider growing up as well, and I don't know if that's the case, but I assume that, and I assume that's part of the inspiration here. And I think the scenes that really put us in her perspective, Kayla's perspective, like one was her gazing out terrifyingly at the, at the or terrified at the kids at the pool party, her kind of waiting silently through a busy school hallway, her sitting on her bed with her phone and laptop for hours on end, it really gave us a good perspective from her point of view. Um, I thought it was honestly brilliantly acted by 
by Elsie Fisher. Uh, I thought she did a great job. I thought Dad was a great side character. He added a lot of comedy, but later in the film he added a lot of heart as well. And uh, I thought it was funny, well acted for the first two thirds, and then I thought it got even better in the final third. Probably not for all ages, but for the... I, I can't envision many millennials not enjoying or appreciating this film. I'll get into that more in spoilers, but I liked it. Yeah, for sure. Bo Burnham, I, I have memories from him in college as the sort of YouTube star who performed these skit songs that were like comedic comedic, and had clever writing. I actually think he came to Central Michigan where we went to college right. and performed. I seem to remember watching him in concert at one time. Um, he was in The Big Sick. He had, was a side role in that and he was funny. Played himself yeah. as a comedian. So I'm not surprised that he's had success here in his directorial debut. Um, what I liked about this movie, in addition to a lot of the things you said, is I feel like we rarely see movies set in middle school that aren't like a Disney-fied Disney Channel show, like, you know, with the Olsen twins, or That's So Raven, or, you know, Hannah Montana. That isn't sort of like a, a tacky sitcom look at middle school. We don't see realistic portrayals of that age group there's a lot of movies set in high school there's a lot of movies set in college you know but we don't really see that tweener age which is oftentimes or i wouldn't even say oftentimes pretty much always is the most awkward time when you're not you're not a young adult you're a you're not an adult but you're not a kid right you're, you're kind of in the middle and for that reason i think this is a really important movie that got made you know, I, it's it's a realistic and true, poignant movie about what it means to be an eighth grader. Obviously, you and me are both men. We aren't, weren't an eighth grade girl, but we were all in eighth grade once. I remember how awkward it was. <laughs> Everyone remembers how awkward it is to be an eighth grader. It reminded me of recent films like Lady Bird or Edge of Seventeen, where it's sort of taking a realistic approach that people can actually relate to. It's not just a Hollywood glamorized version of how things are. Um, so on that level, I think it succeeded wonderfully. Yeah, I totally agree. And you, your point is well taken in that this isn't a film that's necessarily about an eighth grader that's trying to appeal to eighth graders. It's a rated R film. You know, and I think that, I wonder, you know, and, and I wonder if this is the kind of film that would translate well to an older generation. I kind of thought about that because I really appreciated it. Obviously, some of the things that we see I'll dive into it a little bit more later, but the things we see apply really well to you and I as millennials and just, in, you know, the use of social media and of cell phones and of laptops, you know, so I, I have a hard time since like seeing our parents watching it and like getting it, well, but... Well, well, kind of. I mean, I think that's what is important about this movie is that it's not just a movie about eighth grade. It's a, con it's a contemporary movie about yeah. eighth grade that kids can, you know, not kids, but, you know, young adults can watch and be like, oh, yeah, that is totally how it is. Like yeah. that, you know, but you say that it's something that we kind of grew up with. We didn't have to deal with cell phones and social media in eighth grade. It hadn't really been developed yet. You know, maybe we had the first markings of myspace or you know yep. stuff like that msn messenger yeah you know stuff like that but yeah. facebook snapchat instagram these things weren't around and as i was sitting there watching this movie i was like thank god we didn't have all this stuff when i was in eighth grade because 
it would have just been harder than it already was, you know, with pe people posting pictures and the Snapchat filters. And, you know, the, you see throughout this film, kids just enamored with their phones and they're not talking to each other. You know, they're just staring at their phones. They're not having conversations. So I think it does have a lot of commentary also on the role of technology and sort of how that plays into uh, eighth grade and how it sort of makes things even more challenging than perhaps when we were there. Yeah, no, I'm. I obviously had a lot of thoughts on that as well. You know, I, I said, you know, look, what a hilarious yet sad commentary on our current teenage generation and the use of social media and cell phones. And I, again, I know we were a part of that kind of the group that, you know, has you know came up through high school and college with phones. But this generation, the the, the kids that are teens now are taking it to a whole new level. Well, no, no one had cell phones in in junior high when we were there. Yeah. They weren't a thing. And even if we did have them, which was probably later in high school, yeah. they were flip phones. They didn't have the internet technology where you would just have the world at your fingertips. It really adds a whole new layer of. Uh, Applesauce to the apple pie. I'm going to say that because people were making fun. My, my family was making fun of me for saying that on the last pod. So I'm just going to go with it from this no, point fine. on. Uh, but yeah, I think it just adds a whole new, you know, level of anxiousness and challenges. And, you know, it, it can just make things even more awkward. Yeah. And beyond that, I think that Burnham made a point to, he, he kind of superimposed two shots quite often where he's, he's superimposing a shot of her on her phone. Um, you know, in one social media post of a Snapchat of a girl with the cat filter, she's like, meow, you know, and like going through and liking and heart, you know, giving hearts to the Instagram posts and commenting. Yet we also see her face and it's this dull, lifeless, no emotion, nothing. And, you know, it's like, I think it was a really poignant take on how that kind of socializing now in the new age lacks any kind of real personal connection. For sure. And I've got some more to say of that once we get to spoilers. But before we do, I just want to add, you know, the performances were great. Elsie Fisher was amazing at portraying this sort of awkward, out-of-touch eighth-grade girl. Um, and probably because she is one. <laughs> She's, you know, it's kind of like Eminem playing yeah. himself, playing Rabbit in 8 Mile. You know, he's so good at it because that's what he's doing. The dad was great as sort of this supportive... He's trying to be supportive, but he doesn't really know how to deal with this girl who has all these emotions and whatnot. Um, so I really just love how realistic and, and true this movie felt. Very, very genuine film. Agreed. All right, so now we're going to jump into spoilers. And uh, if you want to see the movie, and we obviously are recommending it, if you haven't seen it yet, click out and jump in at the end when we wrap up the show. So... You you made uh, kind of a it had a certain take that I thought was interesting. You said that you know on one hand we didn't have it like this in middle school, and you're right, especially with phones and social media and kids lining hallways with their phones in their faces. We didn't see that. However, I thought there was some things they did that were really cool and fun that created the atmosphere that was familiar to me, especially early on in the film. The little things that reminded me of middle school. You've got you know, close-ups of kids picking the rubber bands and their braces. You've got one kid stacking Crayola markers. I did that all the time. Are you kidding me? You've got like a just a great shot of this this horrible middle school band, and they sound terrible. And our lead here, Kayla, she's like the most irrelevant role, where she's just clanging together these symbols and. I just laughed a lot, and I thought it was really 
a, a fun, humorous portrayal of middle school. Not just, you know, the commentary on technology, but just some of those little things that I was happily reminded of. Mm -hmm. I, I liked how they sort of, you know, because Burnham, obviously, he's 27 years old. I just looked this up. Okay. So he's right there with us, same mm -hmm. age. So he grew up, you know, sort of along with us. But, you know, he's obviously aware of how things have changed in eighth grade now. And what I really liked to help portray that idea um, was the conversation they had in the mall when they were eating and they sort of, she was hanging out with the high schoolers. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about how four years, that's a huge difference. She's like from a different generation. And no, she's not from a different generation, but that idea that age groups of even four or five years apart are different is an important idea, I think. Because I think, you know, maybe some old older people have this misconception that all millennials are the same. When really the truth is there's sub pockets sub pockets of millennials that have experienced things in different ways. So I liked how Burnham specifically drew attention to that idea through the script um, in the story. And while it obviously is not as crazy as the kids were making it seem it is true you know you had snapchat in fifth grade holy yeah. crap you know they're they're well, amazed by that you know yeah. you saw you know well, that's what i was gonna add not just not just the point that you're making but also the point that you know these kids are so just immersed in the social media that you know they divide themselves up based on when they were using a certain platform at one point you know the mom says hey send her a message on facebook and the eighth grade girl's like, Mom, we don't use Facebook anymore. The Facebook age is over. Your mom and my mom love Facebook. <laughs> so it, it was. I thought there was some really cool commentary on that on social media. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, one thing I did I did want to uh, also mention. Um, well, here let, let me. I can tell you're about to make a point, so go ahead. Well, I, it's sort of related to what we were just yeah. talking about, so let me say it. The, a big part of this movie is the sort of videos that she makes for herself and posts on YouTube and gets, you know, three views, seven views, zero views. You know, it's unfulfilling to her. Um, it, and what I loved about those is in the videos, she's saying things she wants to be, right? She wants to be confident. She wants to be herself. She wants to step out of her comfort zone. And she says these things when it's just her in her room in front of a camera. But she's not actually doing it in real life. And I feel like that's how that's so representative of how social media works, right? People try and portray themselves in a, in a certain way on the internet. But ultimately, it usually ends up just being a sort of shallow, unrealistic version of that person. You know, when you meet the person in real life, they're usually not anything like that. And, and what I, I've often found, even in my life today, when you meet someone in real life... Maybe you've just had interactions with them on social media and then you meet with them in real life. They're actually better. They're a more genuine person. They're not anything like what social media is when all the vanity is stripped away. And I think this movie does a great job of sort of showing that juxtaposition of what we want to be and what we actually are and what we actually do. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that. I, I, about, I wanted to bring up her YouTube page. Obviously, you kind of answered it, but I was going to ask, like, do you think that this is a good thing or not? Do you think the filmmakers are trying to say that you know that this is something that she needs and is helpful, or is something that ultimately is harmful to her? I tend to agree with you. You know, on one hand, it enables her to have an outlet where she can showcase some confidence and feel better about herself, but at the same time, she's not you know doing any of the things she's talking about. She's giving advice that she's not taking herself. She's trying to, but she's struggling with that. It didn't reflect who she was at all. Um, but at the end, we see her making videos again for herself. So it kind of comes back around as like, 
But you it's know? but it's after she's had this sort of, you know, play date with the Gabe kid and she's gone and she's had a good time and she's learning to interact. It's after she's told off the, the prissy popular girl. So she's starting to evoke these things in confidence and then she's doing her videos and she's actually feeling confident and reflecting the things that she's doing in real life. So yeah. I don't know if he's, Burnham's necessarily saying that it's a bad thing or a good thing, but I think he's pointing out maybe the ways that this can be harmful and the ways that sure. it can be helpful. Yeah, and, and I loved this about the film, but I also, thinking about it further, I, I wonder if it's maybe a critique in, in that what I loved is the growth of the character. We see her grow in a span of a couple of weeks, really. Um, I mean, she makes some really mature um, decisions. To be eighth, in eighth grade and to have the wherewithal to be able to say, this is what I'm telling people to do, this is the advice I'm giving them, but I'm not able to do that myself. I'm not able to work on myself enough. I mean, these are like mature, wise beyond her years revelations that she's having. And I thought that was really cool. I wonder, are most kids that age this wise and have this much self-reflection and insight? Probably not, but maybe... You know, maybe for the kind of person she is, who obviously spends a lot of time alone, maybe she's come to realize that. For sure. Just to change gears a little bit, you mentioned the cringeworthy moments. Oh my goodness, throughout this film. I was awkward turtling the whole time. The truth or dare in the car. We heard people in our... our, our theater just squirming you know her her converse awkward conversations with the bratty girls when she's trying to make friends you know the dude asking about blowjobs in her dirty photo collection you know it, it was just it really nailed that for sure and in a lot of different ways i feel like <laughs> yeah i agree i mean obviously just her, her her who she was the character made you cringe how she talked to people, how she stuttered and stumbled on her words, how she looked down when she talked to people, how her shoulders were... You can't sink your shoulders any lower than she sank her shoulders when she was walking through hallways. And I really thought that Burnham did a good job of kind of, you know, using the camera in different perspectives to showcase how she's feeling. You know, we, we have this long shot where he stays just on her as she's going out in her bathing suit, which she's incredibly self-conscious about, at the pool party. Just the only hold... person in a one-piece. Yeah, it just holds on her. It just holds on her. And you can see her shoulders, how she's walking. You couldn't have any less confidence. And I thought that he did an awesome job at really... Um, taking us inside this character. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, because here we are, two 20-something dudes, and we're sitting here actually talking about what it might be to be an eighth-grade exactly. girl. It's, I don't yeah. know if we can ever actually know what that's like, but I do think from... I think he got us as close as we ever could with this movie. Unrelated shot when she was when they were talking about the blowjobs and she was going to the kitchen to look and the camera pans over and all of a sudden there's just bananas. I, I, I lost it on that one. That was pretty funny. Um, one other just little note that I saw, it was kind of a cool, at least what I perceive as a cool bit of symbolism. She has this sort of box uh, that's supposed to be her memory box of when she started eight, you know, middle school. And, and we see her burn it with her father. It's one of the best scenes in the movie near the end when his father's telling her how cool she is yeah. and he's just being a great dad and all this. And it's, it's a really great scene. But she burns the box. And I, I think that's sort of symbolic of, you know, I think, and I think what she realizes is you don't have to have life figured out in middle school. 
you know, middle school is not the end all be all. It's just a very small part of life. And she has a new box going into high school. And after high school, she might burn that one yeah. because in high school is not the end all be all either. And, and I feel like there's maybe this myth that, you know, kids have when they're coming up that they're supposed to know everything and they're supposed to know who they are in middle school. And I don't think that that's really the case. You know, we're not the same people that we were in middle school. We're not the same people we were in high school. We're not the same people we were in college. Yeah. So I really like that idea of this is the box of all the things that I thought would matter, but they don't matter anymore. So I'm going to throw it away. And I think that was a really cool just sort of point that was made through that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, again, she's wise beyond her years and the insight, the way, the way that she's able to reflect on herself and who she is and, it, obviously, that was really cool, and most kids aren't there, you know. But for this for the sake of this film, it worked. Um, was there anything you didn't like? You know, I, I don't think there was anything that I, you know, consciously, you know, despised. I, along the lines of what we were saying, you know, I think that I wonder, you know, as a, as a girl that young, you know, did she, you know, is it possible to have that much self awareness where you realize like some of the little things you're doing, um, you know? like posting on Snapchat that you just woke up, even though we saw you put on all your makeup, but you're, you're able to recognize that that's not good and able to recognize that, you know, you've been giving advice that you haven't been taking. I mean, the amount of personal growth that happens over the film is really fun and it's a good part of it. But I guess I was a little skeptical when I think about it a little more like, I don't remember being this self-reflective that at that age. And that's a fair point. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that we can, you know, we don't know what it was like to be an eighth grade girl, of course, but we do know what it was like to be an eighth grade guy. And I definitely wasn't thinking about those kind of things when I was in eighth grade, but you know, it's different for everyone. I would never have classified myself as a sort of outcast in middle school either. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I never had had to deal with a lot of these things. So, you know, maybe if you're someone who, you know, doesn't have a lot of friends and doesn't play sports and doesn't sure. run with the quote unquote cool kids, then maybe you are thinking about Agreed. these things or maybe yeah. you are more aware. But, you know, I, I think it's a fair point. I, but, you know, for the for the sake of the story, Burnham, we have a, an eighth grade main character here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that probably goes back to why a lot of filmmakers shy away from this age group, because some of those things aren't plausible. If you have a high school character, you can do a lot more things with them. You know, you can you can make maybe some more nuance and sort of, you know, complex sort of dynamics happen than than in middle school. That being said, I, th I think this was a really important movie to get made, probably for a lot of different people. Anything that you didn't like? Not in particular. I felt like the dialogue at times was a little bit clunky. It didn't yeah. really flow well. Maybe it was because we had these child actors that are in eighth grade and they're supposed to sound clunky. But, yeah. you know, that's a minor criticism. I think that maybe that contributed to sort of the atmosphere that Burnham was going for. I had a couple more things before I get to my final thoughts. And uh, I said in the pre-spoilers that... The first two-thirds I thought were really funny and really sharp and poignant at times. And then the last third stepped it up even more. And one of the things I wanted to mention briefly was I thought the music was hilarious at times. Especially like the shots when we go to the, the quote-unquote cool kid who all the girls wanted. You get like this blasting club hit. Best eyes. Oh yeah, best eyes. I mean, some of the music at times was really fun and made us laugh and very current kind of music which is unsurprising with someone like Bo Burnham who came up you know producing funny music and and clever stuff like that but I really thought this film ascended in the last 20 minutes you actually get into some serious business like social media a girl not liking you at school not having a ton of friends 
I mean, these are serious concepts and important issues, but we got to see some really powerful moments. Um, obviously, the situation in the car with the high school kid, that's a big deal. For a girl that age to go through that kind of experience is a, you know, for lack of a better word, traumatic, potentially traumatic experience. We see how that plays on her. We see how that impacts her. And then we see her dad kind of come to her rescue. And it was during that scene at the fire where they're burning her sixth grade box when I thought, you know, this is, uh, I mean, this is good stuff because this is a genuine, real conversation that I can see so many dads, maybe me or you someday, or, you know, other dads having with a daughter that age who feels outcast, who feel like they don't fit in, that just seemed so real. I love that scene. And I think it sort of takes on another level because the mom is not in the picture in this movie. She, she, we right. don't know what happened to her. Maybe yep. she left. Maybe it's she, a divorce. She, she did, yeah, they said maybe she, she left. She, Oh, did that? I must they, have missed yeah, that. Yeah, he did didn't... say, when, he said when your mom left, when okay. he started to talk about Okay, that, so she so. doesn't have a mom in the picture, and that, you know, that's another added sort of pressure mm -hmm. and challenge to this, is, and especially for the dad, who, because some things moms are just better at talking to their daughters about, especially a, a girl this age, and her body's changing, and things are going on, and the hormones are aging, you know, that's when you could really use a mom, so, you know, I, I think that that just sort of adds a whole other layer to this whole thing, um, and, and I just think that contributes to it being a really unique story yeah. that we haven't really seen before um and, and for that reason i think this movie is is really really wonderful yeah and last but not least um <laughs> the awkward little date between her and the other outcast boy that was a laugh out loud moment a laugh i loved that i mean it was cringeworthy in the best way for sure so all right so i'm gonna wrap it up with my kind of final thoughts i mean look the film here is a pretty basic film it's a, about as simple of a story as you can get. It's a film about an awkward teenage girl. The story itself, the plot, it's not going to blow you away. But for what it was, I thought it was really well done. I thought it was really effective. I kind of was thinking seven initially, but some of those scenes at the end I thought were really heartfelt and genuine. And I ended up going with an eight. And... I mean, for what this was, an eight is a crowning achievement. I was at the same. I, I thought maybe a seven when I was leaving the theater, but throughout our conversation here, talking about how much we liked it, um, you know, I'm almost thinking, why am I not giving it a nine? I think the movie, you know, is it's not quite on that level where I'm going to go that, but I'm going to give it an eight as well. I think it's a really important movie that's going to have an impact on a lot of people, particularly eighth grade, high school, you know, girls. Um, but even guys too, because they, you know there, there's some guys stuff in here as well. Um, I think it's a, an important movie that got made. I'm excited to see what else Bo Burnham does because it seems like whatever else, what whatever that dude does, he's successful in it. Um, so I'll look forward to seeing some more of his films. I loved the performances in this. Yeah. It just felt really real and genuine. Um, so yeah, definitely would I recommend Eighth Grade. Yeah, and and you say you know quickly. I, I you say I I wouldn't. I don't know why I wouldn't give it a nine. I think that for us as people reviewing, and this is goes for more than just this movie, there's a certain kind of content matter that might not be your top appeal. So you have to take that into account, but also respect how well it did at what the content matter was. I, the, what this film was, I don't think I could ever quite give it a nine, but because it was so good at what it was, that's why we both landed pretty high. So, All right, before we let you go, do you want to wrap it up with uh, the ways that they can connect with us? We like doing polls 
I think, you know, on a week like this where there's no big release, it's a fun way to connect. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll keep posting those polls on, on you know, we've kind of gotten through a lot of the big blockbusters of the yeah. summer. Um, so I think we might have a few more polls. We'll put up some of those other movies. Um, obviously, Black Klansman got a lot of reaction. Spike Lee movie. I'm always down to see a Spike Lee joint. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll have to check that out at some point. Um, but yeah, we'll keep putting polls. So we'll put them on uh, my personal Facebook page and on Second Day Film Podcast on Facebook. You can also search for us on iTunes, uh, Twitter, SoundCloud. You can email us at secondayfilm.com and check out our website at www.secondayfilm.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the movies.